Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth. And with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Drew. Say hi. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. And Aaron, say hi. Hello there. General Kenobi. Finale. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Be quiet. Neither have I. Good, good. Be quiet. Well, first off, I'd like to start with uh, making a correction to, to what I asserted last week uh, on, oh. on the first, first thing on the episode, where I quite boldly stated, no, 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 it's not coronavirus. Well, guess what, everybody? I've just had a week of feeling like death because it was indeed coronavirus. So much so that our meeting that we normally have where we meet up and work out different bits and pieces for the podcast, I was there virtually in the corner as a screen, just having to be adjusted every now and And, again. And the firewall was was well up. (laughs) Strongest. No computer viruses coming through to you. No, no, not. (laughs) Well, I'm back. I still sound a bit rubbish, but we will continue. We will survive. Maybe. Yes, let's hope so. This week, we've got turning your garden into a carbon sink. Uh, We've got news as well. Unfortunately, Aaron is going to break his streak on good news. We knew it was going to happen at some point. Uh, Drew's going to tell us about something happening on a South American island. And then we are going to give our review of Prehistoric Planet. We've all finally managed to watch it and can't wait to talk about it with you. So... Mm. Well, let's uh, jump on into the news and, and get things started with Aaron just going to, to break his, his good news streak. You know, let's, let's get the pain out of the way, shall we? Let's. It's the news! Right, well, we're into this week's news. So, Aaron, let's let's get this out of the way, shall we? Let's let's hear your bad news, shall we? Okay, yeah, I'm um, I'm afraid my track with good news of late has come to an end. I'm officially executing Order sixty six on on good news for the moment because this news comes to us from the Woodland Trust, and the headline is: New Woodland statistics cast further doubt on the government's ability to halt nature's decline by twenty thirty warns the Woodland Trust. And yeah, that should that headline or that type of headline should not really come as a surprise to, to anybody, really. 2030, for some of the stuff that they were talking about with the attitudes that they have towards it, is far too short a time for the uh, stunted slime in our government at the moment to, um, to actually turn this thing around. I, I should mention that what I just said is, is from me, not from the Woodland Trust. Anyway, <laughs> I did was... think it was a bit odd they were calling people stunted slime. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, on to the article, the actual article. So, yeah, on the 16th of June, the government published the Forestry Commission's Key Performance Indicators Report for 2021 to 2022 and the Provisional Woodland Statistics uh, 2022. So the concerning trends these publications show include the fact that our government is way behind in creating new woodland in England. The target set was uh, 30,000 hectares of new woodland to be established by 2024. However, only 1,980 hectares has actually 
successfully been established. The total uh, of 7,150 hectares that is now in existence means they have over 20,000 hectares to generate in less than two years. So yeah, that's not that's not looking good. Um, also, just over one third of, of sites of special scientific interest uh, woodland in England is in favorable condition. So everything else is not particularly good. Restoring irreplaceable ancient woodland to its former glory, thanks to the damage wrought by commercial forestry, is also leaving uh, much to be desired, with only 19 hectares currently in a state of restoration, less than the previous period, 67 hectares. Woodland wildlife, as, as we all know, continues to nosedive. And we are still allowing alien tree diseases to impact our environment. There are now four new threats that have been confirmed in the UK over the last five years. Eight of the 14 identified high priority pests are currently affecting trees in England. This is, includes that, uh, that ash dieback that we've all, we're all well aware of. Uh, so the Woodland Trust has called upon the mob, uh, I, mean, I mean government, to take action uh, to support nature recovery. They're calling for long-term support of woodland management, reintroduction of grant support for planted ancient woodland uh, restoration, and provide high quality out outreach and advice. A swift transition to and full funding of new environmental land management schemes, uh, also known as ELMS. They also call them for the planned GB plant biodiversity strategy uh, to focus on appropriately supporting efforts to cease the import of pests and diseases at the border. They also want a commitment to increasing the number of trees planted uh, with public money uh, to be sourced and grown domestically, not from outside. Uh, the statistics coming out of Scotland are actually far more positive. Their targets have actually not only been met, but far exceeded. So England are kind of letting the side down here. Uh, it's very much um, the government not achieving those targets that they that they promised to to reach. But yeah, that's my uh, that's my. Not particularly good news uh, for this week. Well, do any of those numbers get put against what is being taken away effectively? Because yes, I think that's that's the um because I mean that's, that's the, the point. They they're trying to restore basically one of the aims of this is is to increase the amount of tree cover, appropriate tree cover. So we're talking native yeah. uh, species, restore the woodland in it, across Britain. So, yeah, I would certainly think that this is being compared to what we're losing as well. And they even mention in the article about how commercial forestry is is still having an impact that it shouldn't have. Yeah, it's always um, you'd expect the government to be able to do things like this because it's it's an easy win in a lot of ways. Really mm. easy win to be able to plant areas with trees or just throw the money at the organizations to do it. But, you know, I suppose parties take uh, precedent. But, um, <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing that, yet again, in their minds, it probably seems like a minor thing to try and fund, yet it's the sort of thing that will keep this country actually going. And yet for a, yeah. for a government as well that claims to be about, you know, we need to be insular in our, our thinking and ridiculous in our way of doing things, i.e. Brexit, I agree with the thought of Britain looking after Britain because we could really be doing things to help British farmers, British growers, all these different things, planting British trees. But it would seem that it's still part of the mindset of the, the government and that to ship in 
cheaper trees from outside of the UK, which will then yeah, bring yeah. in different diseases. And yet th- they'll be the first to complain that, you know, we're not doing Britain, Britain stuff is Britain, Britain, Britain. It, yeah. Well, I, I think the difference, the difference between the two lines of thought is that every country should look after itself but we're part of a wider global community. Oh, that, definitely. That help, helps you, we help each other along. We, we pick each other up and dust each other off and stuff. Yeah. Whereas our government is of the mindset that Britain looking after itself is actually keeping everything out and well, closing itself off. It's more of a xenophobic, a, a fear yeah. of the unknown, a fear of the alien, rather than actually a uh, proactive approach to protecting the environment or in anything else for that matter because well, i suppose let's call it what it actually is they don't actually care no they don't no. care whether it's britain doing it or whether it's any other country as long as somebody is getting paid along the way and they're getting the money that's well, all they actually care about don't forget a lot of these promises are, are they come a lot of these targets and promises they come about in these um big conferences where the mps all get together to have a communal nap rather than actually take note of the, uh, of the, oh. they just don't take the, they're not taking the issue seriously. And that's, that's the crux of the issue. Yeah. They don't the believe it's as big election a manifesto really lies basically. Yeah. 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 Well, shall we move on from election manifesto lies? Yeah, of, I think so. Cause it of could... things like that before we start getting far too political and talk about how you at home can actually help fight this situation of lack of biodiversity increased carbon and all that uh, and be able to do something with your garden and basically follow in a, a sort of British slogan that was used. So my article, we're going very British gardening with, with this week's news. Mm. Uh, mine comes from the BBC and it's from their BBC future page. And it's how to turn your garden into a carbon sink for the 21st century gardener, which is a really cool thing. It's basically from patches of wilderness to composing, decomposing plants, turning your garden into a carbon sink isn't just about adding lots of trees. This is an article about how we can repurpose an old slogan that was used during World War II, uh, which was from the Ministry of Agriculture, uh, which was the dig for victory slogan, which encouraged people to basically garden at home because at that point, you know, people didn't have much in the way of uh, vegetables or anything during World War II. So everyone was encouraged to basically do their bit and be able to, um, to garden and keep the place with, with vegetables and stop people from starving. Uh, and in fact, the lawns outside the Tower of London were apparently transformed into vegetable patches at this point. Uh, but almost 100 years later, the Dig for Victory slogan has been repurposed by the UK's uh, RHS, which is the Royal Horticultural Society, uh, which in itself is an organisation that's actually going under, undergoing a bit of change for the better. Or I think we've talked about it previously about them no longer using the term pest. That was, yeah, that was snails. Andrew. Yeah, for snails, I, I did that article, didn't I? Yep. So they are bringing that message forward because they are trying to get everyone to dig for victory to fight climate change, uh, which is our biggest threat at the moment. So, so yeah, gardeners are being encouraged to uh, to mobilise the biggest gardening army since World War II to fight our biggest threat in the 21st century: climate change. Uh, the, with the tools at their disposal by planting trees, using rainwater instead of sprinklers, and making compost. All very simple things that you can do. And, you know, you don't have to have a massive garden to be able to do it. You can make a difference in, well, in all sorts of different small spaces. So one of the figures it's got 
is that if every one of the UK's 30 million gardeners planted one medium-sized tree and let it grow to maturity, um, which is about 15 years realistically for, for some species, some are a lot quicker, some are a lot slower growing, they would store the same amount of carbon as produced by driving 248 billion miles, that's 457 billion kilometers, at 11 million times around the planet. Uh, researchers by the RHS have shown. So if every if every gardener also produced 190 kilos worth of compost every year, they would save the, the same amount of carbon produced by heating half a million homes for a year. That's got me wanting to do more. I don't ha currently have a compost heap at home. It is something I've been wanting to get set up and done properly, because unfortunately for a while we had rats turning up in our garden, which, you know, if you do a compost heap improperly that's basically just feeding the uh, the local wildlife which as much as i want to feed the local wildlife i don't really want rats coming into my garden destroying my veg patches and doing what rats do best so uh so it is a bit of an issue in that sense so you know these things have to be done slightly properly but i do have at least four trees planted in my garden which i have since i've uh, been there one of them is going to take a very long time to grow it's a monkey puzzle which uh in the three years we've had it in the garden has only probably grown about 10 centimeters. So they're quite slow growing trees, those ones. But the eucalypts, they're growing a lot quicker. Obviously, not one of those trees is a native, which doesn't really help out with what Aaron was just saying. But I do have ash trees growing at the back of the garden as well. So they are natives. But anyway, I digress. The government and companies race to slash their emissions uh, throughout media and, and things like that. There's an increasing interest in the ability of natural landscaping, such as forests, wetlands, and mangroves to protect against the risk posed by climate change. Uh, and horticulturists say that the humble garden can serve as a powerful tool in this fight. And I would, would very much agree. When it comes to ponds, you would actually think that ponds would be one of the, the better ways of doing this. Ponds really do have a good impact on the local ecosystem because you'll end up with frogs or newts, uh, various different insects, plants, all sorts of things attracted to it. However, uh, ponds can actually reduce the amount of carbon stored in your garden, as it has as been found out. And that's probably to do with rotting vegetation, I'm guessing, in there, mm -hmm. just sort of releasing uh, methane and things like that. But the benefits that they also bestow are part of it. So it's, it's basically having this sort of multiple patched, uh, a patchwork quilt sort of garden is, is really good. Have a pond, have a tree. Yeah. Have all, of, have all of it. Basically, if you have the space to do it, try and do exactly that. Um, it seems to be that the best gardens, best uh, ones that are low carbon, has wildness to it. Uh, it's packed with trees and plants teeming with life, uh, the gardener then in sustainability heaven, equally basically taking uh, nurturing life from below the ground uh, and then spreading it around the, around the place because we're not just looking at above the ground. We need to make sure that the ground itself is also um, boosting the, uh, the plant growth as well. That, that comes in with, with composting and making sure that we're then using that compost and then spreading it around up to flower beds, which then benefits the soil, benefits the plants, keeps everything going boosts the biodiversity in the soil as well and one of the other big points is uh, wild lawns which we've touched on multiple times before with no mo may and various other things like that the idea of the pristine lawn there's now a big movement in gardening for natural landscaping uh, to basically let these lawns become what are known as scruffy lawns there would probably be some people would would definitely call them scruffy but uh, by allowing them to not be immaculate 
around the edges or even just, you know, in certain patches, you can end up with a real patchwork quilt of uh, habitat for different insects and uh, small animals. It's also rest, uh, estimated that 23% of urban land is covered by lawns. So lawns themselves could be a really, really big part of this. Uh, a lot but of people just have lawns. But they're not a big part of it because they're absolute cack. Well, <laughs> yes, but if you allow that, if, if all you have at home is a small patch of grass hmm. and you've, all you've ever done with it is mowed it, but if you then allow that for a whole year to go wild, you yeah. know, that is going to do something. If you can't do anything more than that, because it may be the only thing you can do, you may be renting and you may not be able to do anything with it. If you allow it to go wild, that's doing something. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it, it, it will benefit better than absolutely mowing it. In fact, operating a petrol mower for one hour releases as much smog forming pollution as driving 160 kilometers, uh, says the California Air Research Board. Wow. So... I mean, that's got to be a pretty bad lawnmower, actually. For one hour as well, that's probably a, quite a decent-sized lawn. I used to, to do quite a bit of lawn cutting, and it didn't take me an hour to cut the lawn. Like, even, even a big lawn wouldn't take over an hour to do, so that's, that's a decent-sized lawn, that one. So Sally Nex, a, professor, a professional gardener and author of the book of How to Grow the Low-Carbon Way, uh, switched her petrol mower for a battery-powered one years ago after learning about the many toxic fumes it spewed out. There's no regulations on maximum emission to petrol-powered tools. It's really shocking, she said. Now, I suspect that is just America, because I do believe there are actually emission targets, certainly uh, in, in European ones and, and even in UK ones, because you, you can't have something ridiculous. But that, that is one of the big reasons I switched to actually having a push mower, just one that is one of those round blades, you know, the, the sort of cylindrical ones. So I've got an electric mower and I've got a push mower. I use the electric one to do that sort of first cut of the year and then the push one to just do the little follow-up cuts every week on the patch of grass that is used as just a lawn. The area that's next to that doesn't get touched at all, apart from once at the beginning of the summer to cut everything out of the way and just sort of trim it up a bit and then, uh, and then after that. But it, it is just making those gardens as sort of friendly as they can be. So the, the article does cover a huge variety of other different bits and pieces, especially gardening in pots on balconies. It's a really quite good read. And like I say, we would be here an awful long time going through the whole thing. So I would definitely recommend finding that one and having a look at it. Mm. I'm also going to put up some pictures uh, this week of, well, of my garden. Um, so you can see just some of the, the random little ideas that we've got. I've also got a rockery out there as well, which has been dug as a hibernaculum. So mm -hmm. if there are any amphibians and reptiles there, they can actually escape below the frost line um, in the winter. Uh, I've got a lot of different insect attracting plants that I've just planted out this year, which unfortunately haven't got to maturity yet, but are on their way. And we've got it mixed in with a few different fruit and vegetable things as well. So um, nice. Yeah. Bit of everything, really. Yeah. Although I have had to fence it off from the dog. Because the dog will destroy everything and the, and the child. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's kept nice and pristine in that sense because it's protected behind a small fence. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those ways you can, you can have a nice garden that's, that's good for wildlife, good for yourself because it's very peaceful, and also um, doing its bit for the planet. Mm -hmm. Like I say, whatever bit of garden you've got, try and do whatever you can with it, and you'll be amazed at the benefits that it gives you. Right, well, let's go uh, into our creature feature. 
Well, we're going to go look at a small, small carnivore on a small island in the middle of a very large ocean. It's the Creature Feature. Right, well, we're now into this week's Creature Feature, and Drew is taking us on a trip to an island in the South Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So our Creature Feature is yet another recently extinct animal, and one that also presented a mystery in regards to its origin, which wasn't solved until uh, 2009 long after it was extinct. Um, I will preface this by saying that this creature feature will also heavily feature a section on its homeland. Just, we're going to take a little while before we actually even get to the to the uh, the animal, but hopefully it'll be fun. Um, so we're going to jump straight into this and we're going to go journey back to March the 1st in 1833. So the two of you are upon a boat um, I doubt anyone's ever heard of this boat before. It's called the HMS Beagle. No. 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 And uh, do you guys have a, just a quick background for yourselves as to why you might be on, on this boat, on this voyage? I'm, I'm the bloke who scrapes the barnacles off the side and give them um, to uh, that Darwin fella. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm the person that, um, that eats the barnacles between <laughs> Gareth giving them to, to taking them and giving them to Darwin. Excellent. Very important jobs you both have. Okay, so... Basically, yeah, well, I mean, stowaway ship rats, by the sounds of it. <laughs> sounds of it, yeah. I mean, you predicted what I'm about to say next, but I mean, it doesn't matter. So, because also alongside you on the Beagle uh, is, yes, a young man. Uh, he's 24 years old at the time, uh, and he is called Charles Charlie Boy Darwin. So he's fresh from a theological education at Cambridge University, and because Netflix doesn't exist yet, there's not much to do at home, so he's basically gone out to discover so you've been hopping around, mapping the South he American... He's on his gap year. He's on, yeah, he's on his gap year, yeah. So you've been hopping around, mapping the South American coast, uh, getting jostled about on the waves, catching diseases, throwing up, and being so constantly cold and wet all the time that your bones feel damp. But thankfully, these tribulations meld with points of contentment to keep you from madness. So playing games of uh, dice and cards, carving, drawing, model making, practicing your knots, uh, and of course, playing instruments and singing shanties. Would either of you, or both of you, like to give us a, a quick blast of a sea shanty to put people in the mood? Um. <laughs> Yo-ho, all together, hoist the colours high. Heave-ho, thieves and beggars, never will we die. That is perfect. Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? <laughs> Blue ring, octopus. <laughs> oh. It's, oh, it's like we're there. I failed at sea, sea shanty school. No, no, no. That was that was fantastic. It's better than I could have ever hoped. Um, but anyway, uh, well, we've had quite a journey so far, obviously shortened by all of those lovely shanties. Um, the vastness of the deep blue ocean has left you bewildered, and you've marveled at some of the wonders of South America, from mountains, river basins, and rainforest. You've manhandled fossils of extinct rhinoceroses, glyptodonts, mastodons, and ground sloths. And you've seen all manner of extant species too, from fluttering moths, beguiling birds, spiders as big as your hand, and parasitic wasps that did things to caterpillars that made you question the sanity, methodology, and thus the verity of a compassionate, omniscient, and omnipotent god. And perhaps worse than the wasps uh, were the sights and stories of genocide of the native peoples of South America and the binds of slavery that followed. Uh, so there's a lot going on. And uh, clearly you don't need Netflix because there's enough going on elsewhere. Uh, but the first sight of your next venture does make you wonder that if you had access to a subscription streaming service, you might prefer to use that instead. Not that there's inherently anything wrong 
with the islands you see on the horizon, but compared to what you have seen, they appear to be a bit bland and the likelihood of the bounty of new discoveries is quite low. As you close distance, the beagle turns and you pass the islands on your right, which is what side of the ship, guys? Starboard? Starboard. Starboard, yeah. Do you of you know why it's called Port and Starboard, by the way? Oh, I did used to know. I know it's Port Out, Starboard Home, and it's something to do with posh people getting a tan or something to do with drinking on a boat. That's not the definition I've got. Do you know, Aaron? Um, No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Posh, posh. The word apparently is an abbreviation for port out starboard home. Oh, I mean, unless that came later on, because the definition I think, I think got, it did, yeah. Or the definition that I've learned to is that starboard derives from steerboard, um, which is Germanic in origin. It was named because before rudders, the ships were steered with a steering oar to the right hand uh, stern of the ship, as most people were or are right-handed, and because you want to keep your steering oar free, you ported on the left-hand side. But anyway, that's neither here nor there, Not really. Cool. But um, there's a little bit of trivia for you. Uh, but anyway, the, the islands are on your starboard side, and you steer around a headland to arrive in a bay hosting a small isolated settlement called Port Louis, or Port Louis. I'm not sure which one. Uh, anchoring up, you and Charlie Boy take your first steps onto the Falkland Islands, because that's where you've arrived. So in Charles's journal, he writes of the Falklands, I quote, the land is low and undulating, with stony peaks and bare ridges. It is universally covered by brown, wiry grass, which grows on the peat. So how do you guys feel about uh, the Falklands, considering what you've already seen of South America? I'm guessing it's probably windy. Yeah. Not a big yep. fan of windy. And cold. And quite wet as well. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say cold and wet. Cold and wet. I mean, I can't even build a sandcastle here. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Well, Charles, like you, isn't that impressed with uh, what he sees, to be honest. He later writes, the whole landscape as an air of extreme desolation, uh, which is a quite, pretty sick burn in the 19th century. Uh, but he also <laughs> added, uh, this is one of the quietest places we've ever been to. But will it get more interesting? Are you both hopeful that it might get more interesting? Oof, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we'll. I think it's going to be cool. I think it's going to be okay. Everything's Good. going to be bright. Bit of a waste of a trip, otherwise, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, does the word fossil excite you? Oh, very much so. <laughs> of course it does. So you spend about a month on the island with Charlie D, and it's mainly fossil finding. Um, after a short walk around Port Louis, uh, you find some fossils that changes Charles' opinion of the islands, and he remarks later, "The whole aspect of the Falkland Islands were, however, changed in my eyes from that walk." for I found a rock abounding with shells, uh, and these of the most interesting age. And he was right, they were interesting, since they ended up being 400 million years old, and were used as evidence in subsequent continental drift theories. So you collect lots of rock samples, and then you're off your tod again around the southern tip of South America. But don't worry, because you return a year later, on March the 10th, 1834. And unfortunately, your return didn't hold out a lot of hope, uh, as Port Louis or Lewis had been the site of a few murders, robbery and plunder recently. Uh, so do you guys want to turn around or do you want to stay here next to Murder Town? Um, I mean, I don't think we've got much control over where the ship goes, do we? Uh, no, Charles, Charles is pretty much set on his, uh, set on his course here. Uh, Charles isn't done. Um, so you jump on horses and you travel further afield. So you head past some stone runs, which are basically like rivers of stone, uh, and a natural phenomenon that Charles attributes to earthquakes because he's an idiot, uh, when actually they're more likely caused by uh, three, four cycles that during the, the last ice age. 
But anyway, you spend some time on the islands. Charles is a bit disappointed with what he finds overall, commenting that few sorts of bird inhabit this miserable looking country, excepting some little geology, nothing could be less interesting. Uh, despite his words, though, he and you both do find some interesting things, wildlife and such. Look, sir, some wildlife and such. Shut up, boy. <laughs> um, so, so what sort of things do you think you might have found? What sort of wildlife do you think you found? There's one of them big uh, seal things over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, those, those birds in the black and white clothing. The birds in the black and white clothing? Oh, the yes. The ones that go swimming all the time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's uh, there's five different penguin species that breed on the Falklands. Can you name them all? Uh, King, Chinstrap, yep. Gentoo. I haven't got Chinstrap. They might visit the island, but I don't think they breed there. Um, Rockhopper? Yep. And Magellanic? Yep. And the last one is Macaroni. Ah. So yeah. Get me with my penguin knowledge. That that was was nice. Uh, So yeah, excellent. So Gareth, you've gone over to explore the penguins. And obviously, you know, they're quite, they're generally nonplussed and relatively friendly. Uh, But you obviously, your boots are caked in, caked in shit. And you get bitten somewhat as well. Uh, what other animals have we got on the Falklands? There's those big seal things. Yeah, so obviously amongst all these seabirds, there's a, a noisy cacophony of pinnipeds like leopard seals, southern elephant seals, and southern sea lions as well. And there's uh, there's over 227 bird species on the Falklands in total, and 60 are known to breed there. So that includes obviously all of those penguins. Uh, do, you, do you guys know any other birds that might be around there? I do. Um, southern giant storm petrel. Uh, yep. Fulmers. Yep. Uh, Do you know any endemic ones? Oh, I'm going to guess there's probably an albatross species that's endemic. Yes. So it is home to 80% of the world's population of black browed albatross. Oh my God. That was exactly the bird name I was going. I was going to literally say that. I was going to. Oh, sorry. I mean, we can edit this if you want. No, 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 no. I'm just, (laughs) I'm just pleased that I was able to think that that was the right one. Yep. I, I just said albatross because I didn't think, oh, I bet you it's not that. It'll turn out it's not from that part of the world. But uh, yeah, nice, that, yeah, that was the species I was going to go with. Uh, there's there's an endemic duck and there's an endemic wren. Do you guys know either one of them? I was thinking that, no, no, the, the duck's escaping me, I'm afraid. Okay. So it's a Falkland steamer duck and uh, the, the cob's wren, the, the cob's wren, excuse me, they're, uh, they're endemic. So Gareth, you spot the duck and obviously- What, the duck? Like all 19th century explorers, you shoot it down to examine it. Um, of course. But it lands in the ocean, and Charles asks you to retrieve it. Uh, do you want to do that? It's going to get pretty cold, but, you know, he's, he's, the, uh, he's the master. I've got to do what he says. Um, so, Gareth, you go out to swim, grab this duck that you've shot down, and unfortunately, uh, you drown. <laughs> Wait, have I drowned? Yeah, you've just drowned. You've just drowned and, and, and died. But don't worry, the, we won't we get too much oh. longer on the role play. Uh, no, the, genuinely, there was a Darwin asked the boy to shoot down a duck and he asked him to retrieve him and uh, the, the boy drowned. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that, that's pretty much what I would guess the reasoning would be is, go on, boy, you've, yeah. you've got no choice in this. Yes, yes. Uh, I'll go out to sea and collect that duck. Yeah. That'll teach you for not shooting it down over land. Yes, it would. Do you guys know of any birds of prey on the island? Uh, striated caracara? Yep. So, yeah, the striated caracara there. 
Charles said of those, they were constantly flying on board uh, the vessel and it was necessary to keep a good lookout to prevent the leather from being torn from the rigging. These birds are they very are... mischievous and inquisitive. They will pick up almost anything. They are absolutely awesome, Strider yeah. Caracaras. They are. Otherwise just... known as a Johnny Rook. Oh, nice. I didn't know that. But, but yeah, just before you drown, Gareth, it, one of the Caracaras steals your hat as well. Just to rub it in. Final insult. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so there's there's no reptiles or amphibians on the island. It is mainly sort of birds and pinnipeds. Uh, there's 200 different species of insects. 101 of those are beetles. Um, due to the island environment, many of the insects have developed reduced wings or have lost them entirely. Um, there are six species of freshwater fish. And there's one final one, which is one terrestrial mammal. And as people listening now may be wondering long before this point, because this is a creature feature after all, what bloody creature is this feature even on? <laughs> uh, well, here it is. And hopefully it's been worth the colossal build-up. So, I mean, Gareth's drowned. They've dragged his body back up. But Aaron, you're obviously still hanging around. But it, this uh, this creature comes over to you because you're eating some freshly cooked duck. That oh, so they got Gareth, the duck in the they end. They got then. the duck, yeah. <laughs> I'm, making, I'm making pancakes with it. But beautiful. So it's this creature that comes over to you. It's obviously a canid, uh, and it's around 1.25 to 1.6 meters long, uh, which is four to five foot. Uh, we have short legs, so it stands only about 60 centimeters or two foot tall at the shoulder. It's fox-like in appearance with a dense coat of reddish brown fur and has a broad skull with small ears, the frontal bones giving it a slightly bulbous look like a golden retriever. It barks at you a bit like a domestic dog, which is curious. Would you like to offer it some food? Um... I mean, my brain says no, but... <laughs> my body's saying yes. <laughs> my body's saying yes. I'm good. Yeah, I've got a spare... spare uh, a man's telling me no. I've not shredded <laughs> all the duck yet. Perfect. That's another shanty. Yeah, yeah so it, it takes it without any hint or fear of... Uh, or, or trepidation at all. So despite its size, this is the top terrestrial predator of the island. Uh, it's a bit like being back home in the UK, <laughs> except there hasn't been a, a bigger predator uh, than this to exterminate, unlike the UK. And because it's a top predator, it's got no fear of humans. And why would it? So do you want to hand it some more food, Aaron? Because it's really enjoying that. I'm, I'll keep giving it more food. I'll, I'll try and uh, replicate early domestication of other, other animals. Nice. Uh, well, as you do... A British Falklander, we're going to call him Lou, smacks it over the head with a club and kills it. Uh, what a... He's a Ooh, moron. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to call him something else? Oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. What a douche. Yeah, he's a moron. And he's afraid that this creature will kill his sheep like, you know, white-tailed eagles do. <laughs> so, or thylacines or all or the other and all the other animals that eat sheep that don't uh, so that unfortunately is the end for this individual uh, but sadly in due time humans would also be the end for all of its species uh, you guys are done with the role play by the way so you can relax now Aaron's let the wolf die he's nudged over and Gareth's dead <laughs> am I alive again? no you're dead you're drowned Aww. so this animal is of course the Falklands Island wolf or fox or wara which is a corruption of the Native American Guarani word, which is aguara or agara, and it means fox. Its scientific name, originally Canis antarcticus by Darwin, is now Dusicyon australis after reclassification, and it means foolish dog of the south, which unfortunately is quite apt because there's a fine line between brave and being a fool. The warrior's fearlessness meant it was really easy to kill as it would approach readily if offered food and people stabbed it or clubbed it to death. It's not very nice. 
Uh, Darwin made some notes about the warrow and did predict its fate, saying, within a very few years after these islands shall have become regularly settled, it cannot, I think, be doubted that before the paper is decayed on which this animal has been figured, it will be ranked amongst those species which have perished from the earth. And uh, unfortunately, he was right. By 1880, less than 50 years after the voyage uh, that you guys joined him on, the warrow was extinct. But it was a curiosity. Darwin was puzzled by this comparatively large predatory mammal on such a tiny set of islands, 460 kilometers away from the mainland. Where did it come from? Where did it go? There's another shanty, I suppose, there. I was going to say, did did that that fella Cotton Eye Joe have something to do with it? Yeah, where did it come from? Falkland Eye Wolf, yeah. Uh, Plus... As we say, it is the it was the only terrestrial mammal there. South America is full of rodents, but the Falklands have none. So what the fudge is this fox's deal? Some theorize that early South Americans must have partly domesticated it and brought it over on their boats, hence its unfortunate tameness. Others said that it sauntered across prehistoric land bridges or rafted over on chunks of ice. Well, Alan Cooper of the University of, here you go, Gareth, Adelaide, decided, uh, decided that he was going to solve this mystery. In 1996, he travelled to the Natural History Museum in London to see only one of six warrior specimens that were known at the time. This individual was collected by Darwin. It is unclear whether he clubbed the animal over the head himself, uh, I'd like to add. Uh, the skull had been thoroughly he probably, cleaned. He probably had some other small child do it. Probably. probably. <laughs> <laughs> the skull had been thoroughly cleaned, uh, which is bad for geneticists, but uh, Cooper found a tiny sinus on its face uh, containing a, a piece of nerve and blood vessel. Bingo. Wara DNA. He then spliced this with the DNA of a frog, and we know the rest. Uh, I, I jest. I'm uh, yet DNA... to go to Wara Park. It sounds interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the DNA was since gathered uh, with other bits of DNA gathered from other specimens and analysed its sequence. It turns out that the Wara's closest living relative is the maned wolf, which, if you're not familiar Makes with, yeah, is a stilt-legged fruit-eating dog in South America. Uh, the two species split apart around 6.7 million years ago. So that didn't tell us how the Mora made it to the Falklands. They then compared its DNA to another extinct canid that lived on the South American mainland, uh, which is named Ducision avis, which revealed that the two foolish dogs diverged from a common ancestor just 16,300 years ago, which rules out the possibility that humans brought it over to the island, and it means it must have made its way there itself. At this point, Earth had just come out of an ice age and sea levels were dramatically lower than they are now and definitely lower than what they're going to be like in a few decades, am I right? But 16,000 years ago, huge underwater terraces extended off the coast of Argentina, like the shallow end of the swimming pool, and the Falklands were almost four times bigger than they are now. The gap between the two was just 20 to 30 kilometres wide and 10 to 30 metres deep, and it's likely it would have uh, frozen over at one point. So the crossing would have been pretty easy. But why cross? Well, there's a bunch of seabirds across uh, that ice sheet just waiting for a sly dog to mess up that happily peaceful time they were having. The Warra's northern counterpart, the Arctic fox, wanders the coastline, snatching up ground nesting birds, their eggs, seal pups, and washed up carcasses. And it seemed reasonable, it seems reasonable to suggest the Warra did this too, ending up on the Falklands and it was then cut off from uh, when the ice melted. As for other mammals, like rodents, that's quite a distance and seemingly little opportunity. So why bother for them? So for the Wara, always sunshine, lollipops, rainbows, and yummy penguins, until our friend, we met him before, Hugh Mann, turned up again, and brought with him his best friend, sheep. You thought I was going to say dogs, didn't you? Uh, but no, human history states that we clearly love sheep more, and cattle too, and we'll kill anything that has the audacity to just look at them. So to finish, I've got a couple of quotes from Europeans who had run-ins in, uh, run with the Wara, and then we'll, uh, we'll round up 
So John Byron of The Wager, who claimed the Falkland Islands for Great Britain, uh, and I'm sure that worked out fine, was the first to take a Wara pelt back to Europe. Uh, he wrote that Waras were as big as middle-sized mastiffs, with fangs remarkably long and sharp. Four creatures of great fierceness resembling wolves ran up to their bellies in the water to attack people in the boat. Later, the men made camp and set fires uh, to the tussock to get rid of them. The country was ablaze as far as the eye could reach for several days, and we could see them running in great numbers. I imagine they were swimming out to them because they probably thought they might have food. But anyway, um, but he and his crew subsequently killed five of them. Dom Pernetti, a Frenchman, wrote, Officers were, so to speak, attacked by a sort of wild dog. This is perhaps the only savage animal and quadruped which exists on the on the Malouin, which is the, the French name for the Falkland Islands. Perhaps, too, this animal was not actually fierce and only came to present itself because it had never seen man. Uh, the birds did not fly from us. They approached us as if they had been tame. And finally, Louis-Antoine de Bougainville wrote, The wolf fox, so cool because it digs itself in earth and lives in the dunes of the seashore, it follows the game and plans its trails intelligently, always by the shortest route from one bay to another. On our first landing, we quite believed that they were the paths of human inhabitants. It would appear that this animal starves for the part of year, so meagre and thin it is. It is the size of a dog and also barks like one, but weakly. So, unfortunately, it is only through, through these reports and the specimens brought back that we now know the war. Settlers hunted them for fur, and sheep farmers both hunted and poisoned them as they considered them a threat to their sheep. So... Guys, do you think, despite Darwin's not very generous report, your trip to the Falklands was wasted? I suppose you're dead, actually, Gareth. I was going to say it's very <laughs> wasted for me because I'm just picturing the sort of GTA or uh, Red Dead, you know, wasted thing coming up as <laughs> as uh, everything fades to grey. Yeah. So for me, yes, it's been a rather wasted trip. Oh, yeah. My trip was... advisor comments are just horrendous. Yeah. Uh, I don't think any trip is ever wasted. It's just unfortunate that my little canid friend was battered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A wasted subscription to life. Yeah, unfortunately so. Well, for Darwin, although he didn't have many good things to say about it, it wasn't wasted for him because the variation in size and colour between East and West Island warriors, of which he was very curious about, would help reinforce his theory of evolution, uh, to which modern conservation is now built upon. But that is a deep delve into the Falkland Islands and the carnivore that inhabited them, the uh, mm. enigmatic war. It's an island chain that I've always wanted to go to for uh, its wildlife, but also for its, well, its history, um, mm. you know, modern history as well uh, to do with it. Yes, I didn't delve into much of that because I didn't no. want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have any... Uh, for the war. Yeah, but uh, it's it's one of those places that next stop Antarctica, basically, so it's... Yep. Somewhere that a lot of places, uh, I think a lot of those wildlife cruisers that then head on to Antarctica uh, continue on from. So, yeah, yes. maybe one day, maybe one day. Hmm. Right. Well, let's go on from, well, sadly, an extinct animal to some other sadly extinct animals. But uh, these ones have been brought back through mm. the wonder that is TV. So we're going to do our review of Prehistoric Planet. Amazing. Oh, look, it's Culture Corner. Right, well, we're into this week's Pop Culture Corner, and this is one that we've been wanting to do. I mean, we, we all saw this before it was coming out and all got thoroughly excited about the idea of it uh, and wanting to see it. And thankfully, well, we've all managed to actually watch all of it now. Uh, we have, well, we thought we'd do a review of Prehistoric Planet. 
which let's face it, it's a pretty good series. Oh, yeah. um, you know, this this is this generation's walking with dinosaurs. It's pretty damn good. So, I mean, well, there you go. You can just cut it there, really. You know, that's all we need. Yeah, it's right. pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Save you an entire amount of time. But no, um, what we thought we'd do is just go through briefly um, the episodes uh, that come up on it. There will be spoilers in the sense that we are telling you what is going to happen in this TV series because, mm. well, it's kind of how a review works. So uh, if you don't want to know, just stop listening to this bit now. Um, but for those of you who want to continue, uh, we're going to go on uh, about it. So Prehistoric Planet came out just a couple of months ago, back in May. It was it was done like as a, a five-night um, sort of event on Apple TV. Yep. Uh, so that was the only place you can find it, which... Mm-hmm. I don't really like from a sort of an exclusionary point of view. Um, that's the one thing I'm not so keen on with all of these sort of TV streaming services, as opposed to like normal TV is that unless you're signed up to every single one of them and paying through the nose, you, you know, you're going to miss out on something at some point. Well, so, they're, they're going to end up with a case of basically everybody taking them up on the free trial or paying for a month and then everybody well, getting rid of it. Yeah, exactly. which it's, it's um, not know. a sustainable format, really. Yeah. No. no. So yeah, um, it was it was on there. So you know, that's the way the cookie crumbles when it comes to things like that. We uh, we we have to accept those sort of things. If they're willing to plow the money in to make such a stunning series, then I suppose they've got the the right to be able to uh, do whatever they want with it. And it is a stunning series. So it's five episodes that was done over five consecutive nights, which that's quite a good way of, of sort of spacing out, not just dumping it all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually done, produced by the BBC, which does actually make me a little bit irritated. I pay for a TV license. I pay for the BBC. Yes. You know, why was that not on the BBC as well? I kind of hope it will end up on the BBC. I, I well, imagine if they, if they did produce it, I imagine they do get the rights to air it at some point. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to think so. Can I disagree with something you said, actually, Gareth? I believe you can. This is something that... No. Um... <laughs> yes, no. What Gareth said goes. This exactly. is something that in our in our generation of instant gratification, we like to binge watch series and stuff like that. And I am against this trend, actually. No, that's I what I'm, I'm, that I'm happy with that as well. You're that's saying that there's, it came up... Like, I, I think Five Nights is not wasn't really enough space. Oh, you want five enough. weeks? Yes, because I like things, when things are good enough, and this was definitely good enough to do it, things become, what? how you describe it, um, water cooler talk. Aaron, so, did you end up watching all five episodes in one hit? I did. There you go. <laughs> I did binge it. But that's because I, I rest had... my case, Your Honour. To be fair, you said, you said to us, Within, I think it was like, I think you gave us a week and a half, two weeks to, yeah, for us to, to watch Spaced it. Spaced it out over five nights, like they yeah. did, you know. But it's as it is, we all ended up just binge watching it. <laughs> That's fine. But I agree with you. Yes, it is, it is good to have it spread out every now and again. I feel that it, in spreading it out, you give it more power. And the more power yeah. it has, the more people tune in, the more people get on onto the boat. And then uh, the more likely as we get a season two. Well, I mean, it's it's left open for quite a bit of other stuff. This was obviously narrated by the one, the only, the absolute unit, unit. legend yeah. that is Sir David Attenborough. Mm. You know, if, if you're going to throw money at something like this, there's no one else who you'd get. 
No. I mean, if I, actually, there's one other person I would, and that's purely for my nostalgia for Walking with Dinosaurs. Yeah, so Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh. Branagh. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I'd have Kenneth Branagh uh, do yeah. it because he is that sort of iconic voice for that. That's I knew Kenneth well, Branagh from that, not because of his film. When I, you know, growing up, it was well, it was because of that. It's interesting in itself that David Attenborough agreed to do it because he, as I remember it, he declined to be the, the narrator for Walking with Dinosaurs because he didn't want to narrate a um, fictitious documentary series. Um, no. And I wonder perhaps if the leaps forward in both our understanding of dinosaur kind of life biology and the technology that we use to represent them is what swayed him to... I mean, keep in mind time. that Walking with Dinosaurs was made in 1993. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Everyone's allowed to make that mistake, that bad call, I suppose, as it were. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm just glad that they managed to get him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had John Favreau producing the whole thing as well, which, Aaron, you, you'd be far more au fait with uh, John Favreau's list of credentials as to what he's done. Yeah, he was the MMA fighter boyfriend of Monica in Friends before. Of before becoming oh that I know that's that's a deep cut that that's, that is obscure that is a deep cut uh he's uh, obviously he's happy hogan but what people in in the first iron man well in, in all the iron men but um what you might not know is that he directed the first iron man film he's he's very much still on marvel's side but he's very much got a hand in star wars now him and dave filoni but uh, what i found interesting is that there are a few it could be an accident, but in all likelihood, the way Hollywood works, this is this is probably not an accident, but they were actually, and I wonder if you two picked it up, there was musical hints to both Star Wars and Iron Man. Not only that, there was also visual cue, cues to his live-action version of The Jungle Book. Was there? Yes, there no, was. I so I can't remember exactly when you hear it, but there is definite tones of Star Wars in Hans Zimmer's music at a certain point in a certain episode and also like i say the iron man theme the jungle book that entire watering hole scene is almost beat oh, for yes. beat. oh yeah, rock scene from jungle book mm-hmm. it's literally beat for beat the way the the um what was what was the dinosaur that came down again it's um, uh tarbosaurus tarbosaurus that's the one walks down essentially like bagheera all the animals, all the prey animals get all tense and part out of his way. And then it's very much like a, a nod, like, I'm not here to eat you. I'm here to drink. I know the rules of Peace Rock. <laughs> well, maybe the dinosaurs had their own version of that. And in fact, talk, talking of Easter eggs, sorry, Gareth, I'll let you carry on a minute. Talking, <laughs> talking of Easter eggs, as you were saying, this is very much the spiritual kind of uh, the spiritual successor. successor to Walking with Dinosaurs. That whole Peace Rock scene is actually preceded by a very Walking with Dinosaurs-esque scene where the herbivores are all getting like a little bit like tense and they all look. And on the brow of the hill comes a lumbering predator just peeking over the hill and then coming more and more into view. That was very Walking with Dinosaurs. Mm. I like that. I know the shot you mean, yeah. I like that shot. That was good. I do yeah. too. Well, it was brilliant. But yeah, yeah, I, I like picking out Easter eggs here and there. And usually, not always, but usually it's done deliberately. Well, the, the one thing that this series I thought was quite good in some ways, uh, but also limiting in others, but like you're saying, could open it up for a, another run of it, 
is that this series focuses on 66 million years ago during what's known as the Maastrichtian uh, era, mm-hmm. which is the late Cretaceous, basically. This is just before things get really bad uh, for the dinosaurs. <laughs> so, you know, it's it, it does focus on a particular chunk of time, whereas, uh, say, Walking with Dinosaurs sort of jumped around and, you know, sort of was all over the place time-wise because it started out with the first episode being the Triassic, then it was the Jurassic, and, right, and actually yeah. following that progression... This seems to have focused on one chunk of time throughout the planet, which is quite a cool way of doing it because I, I it did leave way. it open for there to be some more obscure animals in it. And, and I do really think that this really showed off not just dinosaurs. There was an awful lot of pterosaurs in this and, 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 and a lot of marine reptiles as well, which was really fantastic to see. As someone who loves as darkened pterosaurs, this was jam-packed with it. It was just, oh. That's really interesting because if I had one complaint about this, and I think there's only one, it was that it wasn't... Are Velociraptors late Cretaceous? I thought they were early Cretaceous. They're, yeah, I mean, they're, yeah, all right. They're a little bit earlier. In doing it this way, although I liked walking with dinosaurs because you got to see the different time periods, I felt that in doing it this way, uh, loosely, you got a little bit more attention to the detail of that time period rather than having to spend just like one episode here and then going on to the next episode. They they met, they went biome to biome, but all in a roughly similar period of time. So it, it opens up millions of years of exploration for further series, which they need to get started on because uh, our friend Sir David is not getting any younger. No. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the reason the reason I, are, I said that... You are correct, Drew. Yeah, they are early Cretaceous. And in fact, just looking it up, Dreadnoughtus as well is... Early Cretaceous. So yeah, it's, my, it's the Campanian. Yeah, so my my only complaint with it then, and this is something that, that my partner brought up when we were watching it, is that the time periods and where we actually are... A lot of the times they do mention where you are in the world, but the time mm. periods weren't that clear... And I did think, I think we've jumped two different time periods here because you've got a Velociraptor in one and a T-Rex in the other. And they didn't, I didn't think that they existed in the right time. Yeah. Or at the same time, um, sorry. That, you know, that's, that's a really good point, actually, because, mm-hmm. yeah, Velociraptors from the Campanian and Dreadnoughtus as well. It's the earlier Cretaceous part of the Cretaceous. But it is all the Cretaceous, basically. It's, it just yes. covers the Cretaceous. Yeah, yeah. Because there was, there was no Triassic or Jurassic in it. No, yeah. which um, I suppose... I felt that was just one thing that it could have it could have benefited from was just being clear about what particular time period they're, they're in and how this time period that we're watching now is related to the one that we've just watched. It's funny because the true, Velociraptors true. are actually the subject of my two complaints. Oh yeah. Of this oh yeah. Not scaly um, enough. No, I I, <laughs> I actually will probably get onto that, so I won't say much on on that right now. But what I felt was to an extent. I felt that they almost did what BBC does with orcas. There was a little too much Velociraptor in it when there's plenty of other raptor raptors. Yeah, they, I, think, I think there's a good they reason why they did that. They did do other raptors, but mm. literally the Velociraptor got the main spotlight. I think yeah. the reason they did that was to really push the facts to people watching that what you think of a Velociraptor is, is not... I what, agree. What they, what they which, like. And there's which is cool. There's no um there's no mistake that this has come out at the exact same time of a certain other franchise to do with dinosaurs <laughs> yeah. that has, shall we say, yeah. less accurate views. 
But can, yeah. can I say on, on that point too, mm. the, the paleontological advisors for one franchise helped out on the other. This is one of them yeah. is, is Dr. Steve Brissetti, who we're interested in talking to. His name is attached to both. But then again, I, I, I can sort of forgive Jurassic World in, in that sense because they're not dinosaurs. They're movie monsters, though. So. They're, they're genetic. Anyway. But yes, but I would say that other... Drew is very much correct in that it's breaking that image that people have that Velociraptor is this scaly monster. I agree with that, but also... I felt there could have been more of other raptors is what I, what I thought. Anyway, yeah. the, the second, um, that, that was more of an, it didn't take me out of the atmosphere. What did take me out of the atmosphere is that the velociraptors seem to suffer from the same problem that Chris Evans did, or CGI Chris Evans in uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, and how skinny Chris Evans, because he's not skinny, that dude's huge. But... Uh, Skinny CGI Chris Evans seemed to shrink and grow from, from cut to cut in the same scene. And the Velociraptors, I noticed they constantly seemed to shrink and grow and they never genuinely feel like they were like the height of a turkey, basically. Sometimes they appeared to be the size that they should be and other times they seem to be rather on the large size. I think that's part of the issue with, and you're always going to have this, and it's why... Walking with Dinosaurs did that series with Nigel Marvin. Mm -hmm. is putting a human Imagine. in for scale. Without having that person for scale, it's always going to be hard to get that idea how big that animal is without some object that gives you that recognisable scale. Mm. So it's always going to happen to an extent. I will say they did a better I do job get than that. I ever could. So. Well, <laughs> yeah. so shall we go over what's in the, uh, the, the <clears> episodes then? Because there's five episodes. The first one was about coasts and seas mm -hmm. the second episode was deserts the third episode which actually is probably my favorite was about rivers and, and waterways uh, and sort of wetland areas the fourth episode was about uh, the, the lands of snow and ice so the poles basically mm -hmm. uh, and the fifth episode was about forests uh, and forested areas so they they really did break it down into different biomes throughout the Cretaceous period uh, and gave you a, like a good overview. Some of the bits overlapped. Tyrannosaurus and Velociraptor, like Aaron, Aaron was saying, they do appear in multiple episodes, but you know, they, they, they've got to pander to the uh, what everyone likes. Everyone likes a T Rex, everyone likes a Velociraptor. I'm actually surprised that Triceratops didn't turn up more in it other than just the once. But yeah, so the first episode kicks off with the now somewhat infamous woke t-rex this was my favorite part of the entire series <laughs> do you know what it's it's a really nice scene as well it, it's, it's a know, lovely scene and parent... if you do, do you remember that i complained about this on one of the other podcast episodes oh yes but, yeah, about yeah. people complaining about it being woke what i love about this is that they were complaining about it being woke because it showed daddy rex with uh with baby rexes and stuff and when you actually watch it they follow dad to an island and then they try and share his meal and he tells them to bugger off. Yeah. And I just think if you, like, it just shows you just how much of a wet towel these people that use the word woke are. <laughs> it's very true. You know, you, you've got them, yeah, following out and learning to hunt on basically a small island. You get this nice interaction of, of the adult, you know, with, with the, the juveniles. Uh, you then get the introduction of, uh, there's also Archelons on that uh, beach uh -huh. as well, which is pretty uh -huh. cool. That was cool to see them. Yeah, and of cool. course, 
a species of mosasaur that we have covered. Uh, Aaron, you have covered the Hoffman's mosasaur. Yeah, yeah. Good so old that makes its mosasaurus appearance. Mosasaurus Hoffmani, or whatever it was. Yeah, the uh, the largest predator in the the sea at this point comes and picks off one of the uh, the juveniles. All of this sort of stuff is is you know based on at least evidence pointing in the direction of uh, of things like this and what we can infer. Basically, people don't tend to think of dinosaurs as being much in the way of swimmers, but they found loads of trackways that are from seabeds and and you know sort of river bottoms where they're basically scrape marks where the claws have just brushed against the yeah. seabed as these animals are swimming. And they're a lot lighter than uh, people make them out to be, so they're able to swim. There's also then goes into some of my favorite bits, which is the pterosaur colonies. Very the amount of pterosaurs in this. Oh, just brilliant. I, I, I really like a pterosaur. You've got Tethidraco from North Africa, uh, as well as Phosphoridraco. And I love this little quote that's on one site that I found. Phosphoridraco, and a series full of child-murdering uh, creatures, Phosphoridraco may be the worst of them all. This as darkened pterosaur is only role in the show is to hunt after baby pterosaurs, making a, about as bad as Anakin Skywalker around children. <laughs> nice. <laughs> An nice, absolutely nice. brilliant quote for a pterosaur <laughs> that's only in it for a brief period. So, yeah, you then get a smaller species of pterosaur uh, showing how they're hatching out as well. There's something that I've never really thought about much is, is pterosaur eggs and they're hatching and you know there's more information now about pterosaur eggs being leathery like turtle eggs so mm -hmm. they're needing to be buried or kept uh, underneath you know vegetation to keep them nice and um and supple uh, and you see the the little baby ones hatching out climbing up flying off you know and failing to get away from things like barbarodactylus that absolutely massive pterosaur with a tuning fork on its head it, it, it only is one of those ones that only appears very briefly in it uh, in this episode, but it does appear in one of the later episodes mm -hmm. uh, in its in its breeding colony with the um, the false females appearing and and uh, sneaking in to uh, have their way with the the females. But yeah, they get a nice uh, mention of a, a species of elasmosaurid from uh, New Zealand, Tuarangisaur, which I thought was quite cool that they've they've included something in there because if I remember correctly. Most of the large marine reptiles and certainly the only bits of dinosaurs from New Zealand have been discovered by one woman who discovered them in the 70s. Okay. Uh, because for a very long period, I believe people were saying that there just wasn't the right rock layers in New Zealand to have any of these fossils turn up. And she basically proved them wrong by going and looking and finding them. I can't remember her name. Why can't? Oh, I'll have to look that one up and, and uh, add that in at some point. Well, yeah, the, you get to see them swallowing gizzard rocks and giving themselves ballast and showing paternal, uh, sorry, paternal and maternal care, which is a really good thing to see. You know, these are not just monsters. They are living creatures. Oh, and you also get uh, Kai Kai Falau, which is another brilliant uh, name for a species of Mosasaur from Antarctica, which is pretty cool. Uh, so, yeah, that, that pretty much, you know, is the basis of the first episode. It's mostly prehistoric species living in and around the water. The second episode is all about deserts and shows, well, obviously desert living species. Starts off with Dreadnoughtus, which uh, with a scene that a lot of people got a bit irritated about, the um, air, speculative air sacs, mm -hmm. uh, like a sage grouse. Personally, I quite like the look of that. That's quite a fun way of them being able to show off. That's purely speculative, but it does come from science of how they have pneumatic skeletons. 
there are yet again more pterosaurs in this one unfortunately unnamed species uh, and then it skips to the beautifully colored tarbosaurus uh, with its sort of almost gila monster colored mm-hmm. skin which i think is really nice and the velociraptors which we were talking about before <laughs> showing them off in their feathery glory and of course mononychus with its lovely little owl like face hunting using its yeah uh, that was cool lovely mm. little sticky tongue in fact you see one of them in a later scene running past some large herbivores at that watering hole scene that we were that's talking right. about yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and i think that's quite nice whenever you see the little one it does give you that sense of scale which i think is important in things like this mm-hmm. um there's also uh a completely unmentioned therizinosaur in the background of one of the the watering hole scene bits mm-hmm. i think it's supposed to be something like nothronicus or one of those uh, and you get Bard's Bolia, which is the uh, the hadrosaur, which it uh, they go on quite a bit about in amongst the different dinosaurs as well. Yeah, it basically it sort of, you know, the, the desert living uh, creatures, well, they have those adaptations that allow them to be able to live in some pretty hostile environments. Yeah. But the third episode... Just because you mentioned it just now, Gareth, about the Tarbosaurus and a couple others, the representation of dinosaurs throughout this series was absolutely indescribably stunning yeah um so so the one of the first dinosaurs you see is the t-rex buck with the juveniles and they really set the scene for how this entire series is going to be regarding representation they're just absolutely beautifully colored out beautifully rendered with the feathers of the fuzz uh, the hadrosaurs, the trudons, all of them, just absolutely stunning. And one thing I really did like was if you look at the pack of raptors, the pack of velociraptors hunting the pterosaurs, how each individual was slightly different color. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. all of them kind of bird of prey-ish in uh, in coloration. Very cool. Very yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Very, very bird of prey also with the eyelid um, as well, mm. the eyebrow, sorry. Oh, um, Yeah. That's the third episode where it goes into uh, rivers uh, and streams. Uh, and you get that scene where the, uh, the velociraptors are insanely hunting pterosaurs on the edge of a cliff, which is it's quite a fun uh, one to watch. It reminds me a little bit of that snow leopard hunting scene. That's, that's what I was going to hmm. say, yeah. Yeah, it's catching the, I think it's catching a marcor and it that's just right. falls with its prey, yeah. which I can see a snow leopard doing because they've got more solid bones, but... I, I just get the feeling a velociraptor might actually shatter on impact, <laughs> but uh, mm. you know it's it's part of it. It, it uh, adds to the uh, the scene. She did um, you notice them far. using their feathers. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah sort How of bracing the themselves. Yeah, yeah, that was that was cool. So um, this one has T Rex returning, uh, sort of with a pair going into sort of courtship and everything. We also see our first look at Triceratops as mm-hmm. quite, uh, as a carcass though, which is. Um, yeah. You know, if you're a fan of Triceratops, probably not what you wanted to see initially, but uh, they are in it later. Uh, then we get to see one of the coolest dinosaurs possible, Dinochirus. Yeah, they um, look great. They mm-hmm. just, it just looks like this big shaggy duck thing, which yeah. is, it, they're just awesome. I love, I love Dinochirus. And he is on my list to ca- uh, cover at some point in the future as well. I look forward to that then. Mm. And Quetzalcoatlus, we get to see that yeah. fantastic scene of them yep. Yep. breeding. So yet another Asdarkid pterosaur as well. Um, they look really nice and they have that same color variation that Aaron was talking about from individual to individual. That obviously helps people to distinguish, oh, is that the same one as the other one? You know. And of course, one of my favorite dinosaurs that I've loved 
ever since hearing about it as a kid, Mashikasaurus, or specifically Mashikasaurus nofleri, mm. which is that dinosaur from Madagascar. And you see it with it very small babies being picked off by Bielzebufo. Yes, the giant, my favorite bit. The giant devil toad. <laughs> that was your favorite bit? Oh, yeah. I, felt, I mean, I felt, obviously, I'm, you know, I felt bad for this, well, computer-generated animal. But... Um, <laughs> But I love, I just love the inclusion of Beelzebufo. It was great. Yeah, it, is, it is good to see Beelzebufo. And it looks so good. It felt more like a ecosystem, this series. Yeah. 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 You, you're getting to see that little bit of everything in, in, in what's going on. So episode four then focuses on ice planet, uh, ice planet? Focuses, <laughs> Hoth. Yeah. Yes. Focuses on the ice planet of Hoth, uh, otherwise known as the Poles. Because uh, and this this is one of those things I went and looked at all the different negative comments about about this and people were going, oh, they clearly don't know anything because dinosaurs are cold blooded and they didn't <laughs> live in the snow when that person needs to go back to the 1800s where that sort of thought belongs, because dinosaurs wow. did live in the snow, That's some bad. of them year round, some of them lived in some of the coldest parts of the planet. And we're not big lizards. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, it just irritates me that that's, that's someone thinking that they've got a real gotcha there on them, you know. Yeah. I've really gotcha. There's too much speculation. <laughs> I love the voice that you're doing. It's the, uh, it, yes, the, I'd like to make a complaint, please. Yeah. It's a Keith, like a female version of, uh, sorry, a male version of a Karen. Yeah. The, the T-Rex oh, wasn't right. eating a four by four. <laughs> they weren't savage enough. Why are they not attacking their own children? <laughs> anyway, let's yeah. move on. Episode four, like I say, was about the poles. Uh, featured Pachyrhinosaurus, uh, as well mm, as yes, Nanook it did. Nanooksaurus, which is mm -hmm. a fantastic species of polar tyrannosaur that is covered in feathers and keeps itself warm. We also get to see what is referred to as just an Alaskan hadrosaur. It could be Edmontosaurus, but then again, you, you see an Edmontosaurus in one of the later episodes as well. But either way, there were lots of hadrosaurs living in and around that part of North America at this time as well. Uh, you get to see Ornithomimus with their little breeding colony as well, looking mm -hmm. yeah, with their cool. little, little poofy feathers on the top yeah. of their head uh, and yeah, their nice yeah. big ostrich wings. And Arola Titan as well, which is a, a nice inclusion using geothermal ground to be able to incubate its eggs. And Arola Titan's only a fairly recent discovery as well. That's only probably 2014, 2015, which, you know, in terms of paleontology, we've moved on quite a bit now. Mm. Uh, you also get that lovely looking Truodontid with those lovely little like hanging feathers coming off the back there, giving yeah. almost a headdress look, mm -hmm. uh, hunting, which a gorgeous looking little thing as well. Yeah, it was. Like they have, They've gone absolutely amazing with the detail on some of these. And one of my favorites, I love the fact that they've included not just North American or African dinosaurs. They've included Antarctic uh, dinosaurs, New Zealand species. They've, they've focused on some of the more out there ones, the ones that don't get as much publicity. So you've got Antarctopelta, which is a lovely little nodosaur from, as you could probably imagine, Antarctica, and showing them living together in little uh, sort of burrows as well, which mm. now know a lot of species of dinosaur would have, you know, lived in burrows if they could Satakosaurus being one of them these guys probably doing the exact same as well and then obviously going through the the issues of growing up 
and having to compete to basically be in the borough with each other. So yeah, it's it's really good to see that sort of, I don't know, it's a dynamic. It's a, it's a living animal, basically. They're showing that, that real sense of a living animal. Mm-hmm. And then the final episode is about forests and some of the different forests that were around. It starts off with Poseidon, which is a Southern American titanosaur, crashing through the forest and basically making their own gaps in the forest to be able to feed. You then get that fantastic triceratops scene of them uh, going underground looking for clay. Yep. And it shows, I, I think that is also a bit of a direct rip scene-wise. There is definitely a, an, a documentary with Athenborough doing it about elephants doing the exact same thing. Yeah. I, I, I want to say it's in life too. or one of those other documentaries, but you know, it's, it's a fair assumption to make because these animals would be eating toxic plants at some point or another. And mm. they would probably have to do the same thing. So um, mm. it's a nice scene for to see a triceratops. And then we get the best dancing scene in the entire series. <laughs> the yeah. one, the only, the jazz hansosaurus that yeah. is Carnotaurus yeah. Yeah. doing his funky dance, which <laughs> is one of my only downside points in this entire thing. I think the it's CGI great. It was so goofy. <laughs> yeah, but he's a goofy looking animal. The, the yes, only downside is. I have of that is his arms are the only brightly coloured thing on him. I kind of expected a bit more of his chest to have a bit more colour to it. Mm. The arms are just a bit small for him, that to be his only show-off feature. But I just love you, that whole sequence. How do, you feel, how do you guys feel about his tail being held almost vertically behind him? I th- yeah, I think that's, that's fine. Okay. What's yeah? I don't I don't see the issue. Well, it just looks a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, but he's <laughs> doing CGI what? Was I mean, just janky. I think. Yeah. Um, what it reminded me of was um, if you a bird. Yes and no. It reminded me of when you used to pose theropods in kangaroo stances, and the tail would be all weird. Yeah, I suppose it, it doesn't look fluid it, in a lot of it, ways. Yeah, I, I think he's, he's I, trying I think to stick his head CGI. down, his tail's going up. It's sort of, it makes him look a bit odd. But yeah, you, you then get that, uh, going from that, you go into the Carithoraptor bit with Quinzawasaurus, a beautiful Tyrannosaurid again from China. They hunting. all look really cool, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. they had that lovely colouring. Um, mm-hmm. Not exactly the most camouflaged animals, the, uh, <laughs> the Carithoraptors. Well. You know, nor peacocks. No, this is true. But yeah, that was quite a nice scene uh, to show him hunting, especially with the wind and everything and, you know, blending him in to make him look there. You then go into um, the the fire in a, in a forest with uh, Edmontosaurus and Atrociraptor. Take note for those of you who are watching the Jurassic World film. This is what Atrociraptor looks like, not the movie monsters that they are portraying. So, yeah, you get uh, an ankylosaur as well, chewing on a bit of charcoal, keeping itself nice and happy. Uh, and then you get the therizinosaur scene as well with the um, the babies trying to get to uh, to honey, which yes. that, that was the only bit that was a bit odd in my mind. But, yeah, that was quite cool, as well as Zalmoxis as well included, which is that tiny little dwarf dinosaur uh, from Hatseg Island, little iguana daunted in the undergrowth, the little babies. And the mother of all, the the absolute king of uh, giant flying reptiles, you get Hatsegopteryx at the end there, which is the um, just basically ruling over the islands 
that it decides to land on in uh, in Europe and just basically pick up and eat small dinosaurs whenever it wants. Yeah. So uh, it then ends with the whole thing of this glorious sort of, you know, stretching his wings out, flying off into the distance, which is a very nice way of ending. Very, it. very nice. cool ending. Part of me was thinking they're going to they're gonna go to the classic of there's going to be a T-Rex looking up as a big rock falls from the sky. <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah, I don't think they wanted to go as cliche as that. So, uh, yeah. That was um, basically a quick rundown of everything that is in Prehistoric Planet. So uh, definitely go and watch it if you like yes. any of those animals. They are amazing looking. They are living animals uh, in, in that truest sense. They look really good and the detail on them is stunning. Yeah, I, I've waffled on. Thoughts, guys? <laughs> I mean, if you want to see dinosaurs portrayed in a, a very naturalistic and woke way, uh, go and check out. <laughs> go and check out. Bear in mind, obviously, woke is not a bad word, even though they try and use it as one. Yeah, go check this out. It's great. It's really refreshing in a because I've said my thoughts on the Jurassic World a number of times on here, and it's really refreshing to see something that portrays them as as animals instead of just mindless creatures with with terrible writing. Not the dinosaurs, obviously. But... <laughs> Roar! Oh, let me do that again. Uh, Roar. Also, you'll notice that there isn't as much roaring from the dinosaurs, which is more scientifically accurate. They give the tyrannosaurs a bit more of a a growly roar, but it's not your classic T-Rex breaks down the fence and and roars at everything situation. You'll notice how quiet a lot of the theropods are. They're not announcing themselves six miles away so that everyone can slowly walk into the distance. And escape. They are doing what actual animals do, which is move around silently. Yeah. So yeah, there, there's so many, so many reasons to go and see this uh, and to, to watch it. Hopefully, it's one of those ones that will come out on. Well, this is going to show my age. We'll come out on DVD, and you can, you know. <laughs> but I, I like the idea of having a physical. You can copy. roll back the tape. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, we'll go, we'll go on from talking about this because, to be honest, uh, all three of us could quite happily talk about this for hours which would lead to, well, a very boring time for everyone listening and us completely and utterly ruining it for everyone as well who hasn't gone and seen it. So if you get a chance, definitely get uh, go and watch it. Like I say, if it comes out on DVD or video or on Blu-ray. Yeah. I've got like two Blu-rays. That's it. Or download it. I don't, I don't know. Whichever way you can get a hold of it. Legally get a hold of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go and get a hold of it and, and watch it because it is definitely worth it. I've, I've watched it twice in total and you, you notice a lot more smaller details the second time around. So, yeah. But let's go on from uh, our review of that to our emails. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Okay, right. Well, we're into this week's emails. Um, we've just gone for one this week because we've run a bit long with our waffling of dinosaurs, uh, which... Kelsey's, you know, that's what I do and do. It best. did deserve it. It did deserve it. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we've got one one question this week, and I think it's quite an important question. It yeah. comes from Simon Barnes. Well, more specifically, Simon Barnes's four-year-old, who was asked, What is the coolest underground living animal? Mm. Which we've all gone and decided to pick our own cool animal. I think it's entirely up to you, whatever you you think is the coolest animal that lives underground unless unless he means like temperature wise which one is the coolest underground 
well. Well, this but we're going. True. We're going with cool as in what we are. What the three of us are not. Mm. I suppose Aaron. Aaron <laughs> might be. Aaron might be because he's a surfer. I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> right. Well, I'll start with my case. Mine is the southern marsupial mole, and actually, oh. I wanted to. I I did think. Oh, could I get on the coolest thing? Because this is a species of well marsupial that looks almost identical to a mole, apart from the fact that it's a lovely golden silvery colour. Um, and they live in the inland deserts of Australia, so it gets very hot during the day, mm. very cold of the night. These guys stay cool by staying below that layer of sand, keeping themselves at a fairly constant temperature, pouncing up to grab uh, lizards and insects during the night by basically swimming through the sand. That's my thought for coolest it is very cool looking, and it is also an animal that manages to keep cool in a very hot country. Mm. Mm. Um, so I, I'll just, just because Drew brings up a valid point about temperature-wise, so I'll, I'll, I'll do two, but I'm not going to give you any detail on them because the first is deserving of a creature feature, and the second I would love to cover in a creature feature myself. So the first coolest underground animal in terms of like street cred I reckon it's mm. definitely the naked mole rat. Yeah. Yep. That is Very an cool. awesome mm. animal. Ugly as sin, but yeah. cool. Like, oh, yeah. Cool as Michael Jordan. Very cool. And cool in terms of temperature, surely, at least for part of the year, that's a polar bear mother and her cubs. Mm -hmm. When they're in their underground den there. Yep. I was thinking lemming, actually, as well, for cool Yeah. Uh, in temperature-wise. Uh, yeah, mine I've covered, well, a little throwback to another episode, I've covered another episode. When I think of burrowing animal, my immediate reaction is to think of gerbils, and I think gerbils are cool, which I wax lyrical about on that episode, mm -hmm. and hamsters are still rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Which are themselves. On, oh, sorry, go on. Which, which are themselves a, a burrowing animal as well, yeah. But yeah, they're not cool. They're not cool. All they do is go, and, go down on the ground and then just wheel all over themselves. And, uh, and that's their life. Well, there you really. go. There you go. There's there's our quick brief takes on uh, which we think are some of the coolest burrowing animals. Mm. I mean, there are all sorts of different things. There's burrowing frogs that only come out when it rains once a year. There are cicadas that only come above ground every 17 years, and that's just to breed. There are species of fish that can remain dormant in eggs that will then all of a sudden burst into life, breed, and go through their entire life cycle whilst there's rain. Oh, there's species of giant worm that spend their lives entirely underground in burrows uh, and can be occasionally tempted out with mm. tapping on the ground. You name it, there are multitudes. In fact, even just our own European mole yep. is pretty cool as well. At a, at a risk of mentioning too many mammals, if, if we're talking cool as in it's just really chill, really chilled out animal, I think I think aardvarks uh, should have oh, an honourable yeah. mention because they are really chill and they're cool animals as well. Yeah, very much so. Never, never right. met a, uh, an aggressive aardvark. <laughs> it's not really something you're going to ever get killed by, is it? Well, gummed to death by an aardvark. They got big claws. True, but I have a feeling. That Unlike an anteater, they don't seem to, you know, swing they them don't around. They chase people. after people. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be far more scared of an anteater that's annoyed at me than an aardvark. Yeah, but uh, I could be wrong. I think the flip side of that coin, Drew, mm. is um, an animal that digs burrows, lives in burrows, but is completely not chill. Yeah. 
and it comes from the same continent. It's the Rattel. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the no, they, are not, they are not permanently annoyed. They the Antiardvark. Yes. <laughs> well, there we go. If you too, dear listener, want to find out what our thoughts on our favorite burrowing animal, swimming animal, flying animal, any of those sort of things, um, you can do so by getting in contact with us at our uh, email address, which is thenathistorycupboard at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter and on Facebook. As well as Aaron, where are we as well? We have this evening just breached the void. Uh, <laughs> and we are now on Instagram. Popped out the bar. Fantastic. Yeah, we've popped out the bar. <laughs> <laughs> and, fi- and you can find us on, on the Instagrams uh, by just searching the Natural History Cover podcast. And by the time this episode comes out as well, it should be apparent that, in fact, our T-shirts are up and on sale Way. on our merch site. It's finally happened, ladies and gentlemen. It took us a long time to get everything sorted. It took us a long time to get that new t- on that clothing. Um, but we've got the uh, we've got the new on there. We've got the 2021 roster, and we've also got the cupboard door as well. So you can you can see all the different designs. There'll be more ones going up there over time. But uh, yeah, you can find that by going to our T-Mill page, which Drew? You can find those on thenaturalhistorycupboard.tmill.com. Fantastic. That's, that's yeah. all, all, one, all one word. There's no hyphens or anything in there. Um, but uh, we're, we're we, will be... link, we will link it on our socials. If That, if that yeah. might be what you were just about to say, Gareth. Sorry. I was going to say it was, yep, that's fine. I've stood um, up, I've, I've, I don't know my place. <laughs> Absolutely. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I don't know where I am either. Yeah. Um, so we're also, like I say, on TikTok, and that's where we post up all our little videos. You get to hear some lovely videos of me at the moment where I sound pretty much close to death, actually. I, when I recorded them, I don't sound as good as I thought I did. <laughs> but anyway, um, remember, if you like what you've heard, you can uh, like, subscribe, smash a bell, buy a T-shirt, pull a button, do whatever it is. Um, and uh, on whatever podcasting service you're listening to us on, tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell a small wolf-like dog in the middle of the Atlantic. Yes, but wear a t-shirt whilst you're doing it, so they but know exactly. And they know you yeah. listen to us. Well, you'll you'll stay warmer as well. You will stay. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, that just leaves me to say a big thank you to my co-hosts. A uh, big thank you, Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> you're welcome. Oh dear. <laughs> a big thank you to you as well, Drew. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you, Professor. That's all right. Is, are, are our, our t-shirts, are they uniform now in the school? Do we have to wear them every time? You know what? I think I should, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and implement that. I don't know how much, uh, how much sway I have over that sort of policy, but uh, we shall see. Hmm. <laughs> and, that, and that just brings me to say a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we will see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Come again.